Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. I really want to thank you guys who have been tuning in to the podcast. Whether this is your first time listening to the show or if you're a regular listener, really appreciate you guys for being here. And I want to ask you two quick favors. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you're on Instagram, go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. So I'm looking forward to uh, you guys getting to listen to today's episode. It's a really amazing story about this brother Kareem who's been able to break through so many different barriers and boxes that society would have had him put in. And he just kept rolling forward and pushing forward. And now he's embarking on a new frontier as the owner operator of his own Chick-fil-A franchise in Chicago. Really amazing story, a really amazing journey that I think we all can learn from and can take notes, whether it's for our own career and personal development or on our entrepreneurship journey, if we seek to be entrepreneurs. So I appreciate you guys for being here. I don't want to belabor the point. Let's get into it. Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What's going on, everyone? My name is Kareem Edwards. Ailing from Farakway, Queens, but residing in Chicago, Illinois. Hmm. I see you had to get that Far Rockaway shout out in there straight up. All that. Are you, rock, are you rocking Tim's right now? Uh, my, my wife and my mom won't let me wear any shoes in the house, so I'm not. <laughs> but uh, that's the lead. <laughs> Fall season is here, so they're, they're out. If you could, they'd be on. That's what's up. So uh, what, what was it like for you growing up in uh, Far Rockaway? Yeah, um, for anyone familiar with New York, Rockway is a little bit different than any other part of New York because it's, I mean, it's, it's in the name, but it's so far from everything. So it's the last stop on the A train. It's in Queens, but in order to get there, if you're driving, you literally had to go through Long Island and then come back to Queens and to Rockway. And um, because it's so isolated, it's on the peninsula, it's roughly about eight projects in a span of a mile and a half or two miles. Mm. Uh, you kind of hit with some of the economic downshift, um, like most inner cities, but it's compounded because one, you're isolated, and two, there's so much people on top of each other. So right. for me at the time growing up, I, I thought it was normal. I'm like, oh, this is just how everyone lives. It wasn't until I got to high school where I went to Thomas Edison, Jamaica, Queens, and I had a commute roughly about an hour and a half, hour, 40 minutes to get to school where I started sharing some stories and like cast like, nah, that doesn't happen out here. I'm like, huh, okay. Huh. And then when I got to college, started sharing more stories and people from New York or other parts of the country, like, wow, okay. That is very different than I grew up. So I think Farakway is just a unique place where you have stark differences of some of the poverty, but on the flip side, I mean, you're on the beach, right? So there's nothing more natural and beautiful than just for me, at least, uh, a body of water and being able to surf or swim. Um, so a very unique place yeah. where a lot of kind of like oxymoron at that time. Huh. That's interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like my neighborhood was not as isolated as it sounds like far Rockaway was, but my neighborhood in LA was so far South in the whole South LA kind of one ten corridor dynamic. Mm-hmm. We ended up being not too far from the water. So, mm-hmm. I used to be able to escape away to there the beach go. and that would like have this massive influence on my mental health. But I would love to, love to hear. So you saying like these far Rockaway stories, like you would share them when you start getting to high school and uh, college and beyond. Yeah. And people so, were like, wait, what? So I, 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 yeah. I got to get one of them. Uh, so, I mean, there's been times when I would talk people like, oh, I'm from Far Rockaway. And like, word? I'm like, yeah, like I heard y'all shoot cats in their feet and then tell them to walk home. Like, what? And uh, I don't know all the cases, but they would just hear some wild stuff. <laughs> and it's to the point where I never had a fight in, in high school because my oldest guy's from Farakaway, so that protected me, right? Huh. And these are cats from Southside Jamaica, Queens, from the best styles of Brooklyn and Fort Greene. Right. The Farakaway mentality is so different because it was so far and excluded and isolated. I think the mentality there was if you're leaving Farakaway to go anywhere, Either we're going to have fun or someone's going to pay the price because we just took an hour train ride, hour and a half, whatever. <laughs> something needs to pop off, right? And right. then you have that poverty aspect like, nah, we out here. We want to get something. Um, but on the flip side, again, there was so much riches in there from the beach to some of the diversity. So my neighbor to my left 
was Jewish to my right, Haitian. Of course, she was Indian. And we had Puerto Rican. So it was like a little United Nation. So it was mm-hmm. all this beauty mixed with some of like the ugliness in the world. Uh, so it's kind of unique now looking back at how you navigate all that aspect of just living or raising and growing up in the inner city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. With, with all that diversity, I had, I've heard before that like New York is super diverse, but no one interacts with each other. Was that the case in Far Rockaway or was it different? Was you said Jewish neighborhood, mm-hmm. Indian neighborhood, um, a Haitian yeah. neighborhood. Were, were people interacting with each other? Was everyone staying to their own? So in in my neighborhood and in my circle, United Nations, right? So I was mm-hmm. going about mitzvahs. They were coming to all the Caribbean, West Indian stuff that we were doing. Um, you know, I was going to quinceaneras and, and all that. So right. it was love, right? Like if you was a real person and you was good, then you were good. And if you like basketball or another sport and you rock, then let's rock. It wasn't until I think, I think again, like even though it was difference in cultures, you're in Farakway and we already felt different from the rest of the, the boroughs, right? So, I mean, Farakway mm. is also known as Alcantara, also known as Sixth Borough because <laughs> we're so far, right? So, I think that united us, right? In a way, we're like, all right, cool. Yep. You're here, I'm here, let's, let's do it. Hmm, that, that that makes sense. I, I can see that too. I can relate that to my own story in that my neighborhood was predominantly black and Latino. And the way it was set up in in three of the four cardinal directions, we had a rival gang neighborhood. Like mm-hmm. like really serious, like shoot on sight or fight on mm-hmm. sight, like real, real conflict kind of in, in three of the four directions. And then the fourth direction headed west, there was this like white middle class to upper middle class neighborhood that was its actual own city it wasn't a part of the city of la and they had their Mm -hmm. own mayor they also had their own police force so they Mm -hmm. used to be really hard on us if we ever went there either and so the byproduct of that is everyone from harvard city then you know i mean we moved around a bit but like when you moved around you were you were aware you made a conscious choice that you're going to lead a neighborhood but what that also did was growing up in la in the you know 80s and 90s Blacks and Latinos in inner city LA had mad beef because of gang issues and drug cartel and all that other mm. stuff that kind of trickled into into civilian society. Like prison culture trickled into civilian society mm-hmm. because of gangs. But in my neighborhood, yeah. the black and Mexican gangs had to get along to a degree. You know, there were mm-hmm. there were separate gangs, but we couldn't have the same. There would be full on race wars in LA in the nineties between blacks and Latinos. Wow. Like straight wow. up high school shut down because of a big race fight would break out. That never happened in my neighborhood, and I think it was very similar to what's yeah. happened the way you the way you described Far Rockaway was because exactly. you were so different and so isolated. Then folks just had to you know get along. Yeah, and very similar to you, right? So it's Far Rockaway, and then it's Rockaway. So Far Rockaway is like downtown Rockaway. When you start going to Rockaway, so Far Rockaway and Rockaway, you start on Beach. Let's say Beach One. You go all the way to like beach 150th. When you start getting past 90th, the water's a little bit more clear and more more blue. I'm like, okay, money's here is a little different. And then on the flip side, if you have beach one and you start crossing the bridge, you're now in Long Island where you start seeing the million dollar homes and the wealth and so on, right? So there was a boundary even within Rockaway where like, all right, you're gonna go into Long Island or the cops are gonna get you. You don't go past 98th. Or X is gonna get you. Now X is gonna be cops, Irish, whatever it may be, get caught up real quick. Everything downtown is like, all right, you good, you good. And gangs wasn't really hitting heavy in New York like that. And when it did start hitting, it was more about being flashy and money. The gangs that we had in Farakaway was actually more cultural, like um forget what they call Latin Kings was heavy, uh, the El Salvador El Salvadorian gang and uh, some Jamaican gangs, right? So those cats were like pulling out machetes and doing all types of reckless stuff. But outside of that, uh, you just shot the fair one, and that was about it. All right, kept it pushing. So, so yeah. you grew up in this, you know, United Nations kind of unique, kind of gumbo type environment, um, and then you start to. So it seemed like a, a bit of that because I was I was gonna be curious, like how did you? kind of start to think beyond it. You generally, your folks are from inner city neighborhoods that are really isolated. Their perspective becomes really small, but it seems like yeah. yours was already broadened. Puerto Rican, Indian, Jewish, 
Haitian, Jamaican. Yeah. So already started to open up. And then how did things get even, I guess, more broad when you started going to high school in, in Queens, like outside of your neighborhood? Um, it probably got a little more broad because one, we were next to St. John's College. And then I was getting kind of access like, oh, this is how college life is a little bit. And then uh, it was the time when Ron Artez was going to St. John's. Mm. And he would even come by our school and all that stuff, right? But more importantly than high school, um, well, I guess one way it got brought for me in high school, I was involved in a lot of leadership stuff. So I was, I'll let you guess, I was a captain of a, a high school team. And if you guess, 100 on you, 100 on me. <laughs> all right. Um... One guess. All right, so I, this this is not my guess yet. So I know you play the hoops. I've seen video of you doing a reverse dunk, but I'm a guess that you were captain of speech and debate. Cool. I was a captain of the bowling team, the right? Bowling. So yeah, right. So I played basketball like a year or two, and then bowling four years, and that kind of opened the door in terms of even more diversity because you can imagine. Wasn't too many black people bowling. Nah. And then uh, I got blessed. I was also the student president or vice president of the school. And then right after 9-11, um, New York built a partnership with, I forget the name of the organization in, in Germany. And they selected 40 high school leaders to go to Germany for a month. And that was my first time wow. going abroad without my family or going back to Trinidad. And it just seemed like how people think outside of the U.S., right, outside of New York. Yeah. I'll never forget, it was kind of eye-opening playing basketball with one of my host family. We had a host family for the first week, and the next three weeks was all 40 of us just touring Berlin and other parts of Germany. Um, playing basketball with my host family, and some dude walks up, and I guess he heard me speaking, and straight out of nowhere, you American N-word. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> what? Wow. It's aggressive, right? Right, and right. And Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, this is not a Michelle Obama moment. When they go low, I went, I went low as well, and I just rocked them. <laughs> yeah. right? I'm like, what is happening? Um, and then I spoke to the host family, spoke to my family about it. But it was that was a pivotal part in terms of like, hey, you got to be thoughtful and control your response because this is how life's going to be. Mm. Unfortunately, yep. And I was quickly reminded about that and humbled by that. When I got to college, which is a 180 from New York, a 180 from Rockaway, when I attended DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, where the grandmaster of the KKK lived 35 minutes from campus. Mm. And they would send letters and notes to the school like, hey, we're going to rally on campus on this date. Right. So it was just complete opposite of my experience growing up to where it was just like they legit ate beef and, and corn and potatoes and like doing Natty Light or hang out at Walmart. Right. Or I was sneaking off in the clubs at 17 with braces going to exit in, in Manhattan, right? So it was just a 180. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. I think seeing those two different kind of lives kind of opened my eyes to the spectrum of culture and the spectrum of how people live in America. Yeah. So I, I, uh, so there's so many questions in there. The first question I'll ask is how, I guess it's two part. One, do, do you think it benefited you to be exposed to all these different worlds? Like, was it was it more of a benefit or a detriment? And then uh, question two is, depending on what your answer is, more benefit, more def uh, detriment, uh, how so? Yeah, for me, it was definitely a benefit. And uh, yeah. I think for a number of reasons, but the one that comes to mind by seeing so many different cultures and engaging with so many different cultures and people, I always tell people I speak multiple languages, but the only language I really speak is like, well, I guess two English and Brooklyn English. Hmm. But by <laughs> seeing the different cultures, you can start speaking their language by listening in a different way or engaging in a different way mm -hmm. and being more empathetic, right? So that just opened my eyes on how to engage with people. And I, I think you and I and a few, few of us discussed how in business school, they love to say, like, the hard skill is, you know, you got to learn finance or operation. And to me, that's all stuff you can learn on a, on a job. The hardest skill I think you can learn is how do you lead and incentivize others with or without authority. Mm -hmm. And I think from a kid who's grown up in Farakway, 
right? Whether it's like, I'm going to Brooklyn, I got to show people how to we get down in the, in the right way or these different cultures or going to high school where um, it's an hour and a 45 minute commute and leading the bowling team and whatever it may be. He's like, all right, how do you actively listen, see what someone's talking about, see what they care about, see how you incentivize them and then get them to kind of go with that mission or that thought you have. So it was a right. blessing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to not tend to, I, I, I definitely side with the idea of getting kids, especially black kids, getting them out and exposed to as many different environments and cultures as possible, you know, because it, it opens mm-hmm. your brain no matter where you live, especially in a place like far Rockaway though, where the world mm-hmm. can become really small. It can, be, it can become a few blocks by a few blocks. Like I used to run a mm-hmm. youth development program in East Oakland as a trip. You ever spend any like real time in Oakland, you could be up in the hills of Oakland and there are wild turkeys, wild deer, mountain lions. <laughs> wow. You can't even see the city, just natural, thick forest, lush. I'm mm-hmm. not exaggerating. You drive down a hill five, no more than 10 minutes, and you're in the heart of the flatlands of East Oakland, which is where a lot of Oakland's reputation comes from. And so mm-hmm. I used to work with these youth who were from the flatlands, and they had literally never been up to the hills. Yep. Like they had just kind of lived in this few blocks yep. by few blocks. It's kind of day to day and some mm-hmm. of them never made it as far as West Oakland, which is not even that far to me, especially somebody you know, like me coming from L.A. where it's just this massive mm-hmm. sprawling metropolis. So people can be kind of put in a box. So I think it's important to be mm-hmm. able to get out and see more things because there is a lot of upside to it. But then mm-hmm. there is also the not everyone is uh, for different reasons, whether it's natural ability or how they were raised. Some people are not as equipped or as comfortable and being fluid and moving through different languages or different cultures. You know what I mean? Even though it's all English, to your your point, it's like different languages. Mm-hmm. I think that is a critical skill to develop. Man. But if you don't develop it well, mm-hmm. it can produce a whole lot of anxiety having to move in these different spaces. And some of it comes with uh, some scars and some baggage. So, I know, <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead. No, yeah, I think it's spot on, right? I think even growing up in Rockaway, all different cultures are going to a predominantly white institution and trying to navigate there. There's a cost I paid whether I like to admit it or not, or if I know it and I don't know, right? Like mentally, you're always trying to navigate in a space that's probably not for you or is so different. Mm. Um, and that's why I love the fact that people are talking more about mental health and emotional health and so on. Uh, so it's definitely a price you're paying by learning. The way you'll call it school of hard knocks, you're learning something, but there, there's without a doubt a price. Yeah, no, that's that's valid. You know, that's even one of the things that is, we're going to get to in a bit. You know, is you know you made your move like out of corporate America, not to speak for you, but to speak for mm-hmm. myself. One of the things that I did, I intentionally wanted to go be involved in corporate America because I wanted to learn skills to be able to help build scalable businesses. Like, I think that was Mm -hmm. just a talent set that we needed in the black community. And I was like, hey, it's on me to be one of the people to go get that skill set. And still trying to figure out exactly how to bring it back to the community to benefit it outside of my immediate family. But while I was in corporate America, and right now I'm in a place where I'm kind of deciding, do I want to go back in or not? I'm playing with Mm -hmm. some entrepreneurial endeavors and I'm, I'm leaning heavily towards all chips in entrepreneurial in hopes of never returning back to corporate America. Um, But that said, while I was in it, there's a lot of good things that happened there. And there's a lot of beauty in being able to navigate that space. But even post Michigan MBA, uh, very successful, highly educated, very experienced. Mm -hmm. There still was this this ongoing accumulation of like negative, like mental health residue that, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm working on now as I, very, very proudly will share that, you know, I, I work, I found a brother actually who's, who's a therapist who I work with. I do my meditation. I bought a subscription to the Calm app who they don't sponsor me. I don't get any money from them, but these are just different <laughs> things that I do to try and work on my mental health. And a big yeah. part of what I'm working through is from transitioning between these spaces. And it's not just stuff from my childhood, there's stuff from my adult life working, you know, as a pretty senior executive in corporate America. Talk on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. I just uh, did a video yesterday, last night for Google and everyone to kind of 
they asked me to share my story why I left, you know, Google, right? And uh, I spoke on it and I got some feedback today. Yes, I'm executive so and he's like, oh, this is powerful. Like, we didn't know this story. But to your point, just from that engagement alone, my mind started going back like, oh my God, it was so stressful being in corporate America as a black male, especially if you're the only one, right? So again, you're, you're paying this price. You have this great cushion job. You have this title, this brand. But uh, on the flip side, at least for me, uh, there was some mental health stuff that was happening, being the only one, the pressure always being great mm-hmm. and not being able to have a break and so forth. And mm-hmm. somewhat similar to Farakway, right? Where like, it wasn't about, I got to be great, but legit was about like, all right, how do I survive and get home tonight and make right. it to the next day? That's real. And there, there, are, there are threats that you have to face that other people don't have to face and they're persistent. And, and it's funny, I was talking with my, my brother the other day. We're, we're talking about uh, Caught Their Eye, uh, the Jay-Z track. And mm-hmm. he said uh, he can read invisible ink. He had to read things that weren't there. And he mm. talked about being able to see a side eye in his sleep. Like that is a dope superpower to have, but it's also <laughs> super stressful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause I yeah. have it. Like I can see what's not there. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't say it, but it's yeah. coming out your pores. I can see it. I can feel it. I'm aware that it's happening. I can see yeah. even it's though you're smiling, you're giving me a side eye. Right. There's a level of freedom that comes of being naive or ignorant because <laughs> you're not worried about it. Yeah. But when you're kind of keen to like, oh my God, when you get a peace of mind, because they're always kind of looking and observing and trying to protect you and your loved ones. Yeah, that's that's real. So help me understand. So we're going to get to, in a little bit, we're going to get to you leaving corporate America and going off on your entrepreneurial journey. But help me understand. Mm-hmm. So you're you're down at DePaul in Indiana. How do you, yep. what was that experience like? And how, how do you, how did that propel you into corporate America and what attracted you to corporate America? Yeah, so I'm a first-generation scholar, so I'm the first person in my family to go to college and graduate. And so I was blessed. Yeah, definitely blessed with a full tuition scholarship from the Posse Foundation. Um, Quick kind of like top line on Posse, started in 89. The founder, David Bill, asked a group of students who dropped out, why he dropped out. One brave soul said, if I had my posse with me, I would have stayed. So she came with the idea of sending kids from the inner city in groups of 10 to 12 to these colleges like the Vanderbilts, the Michigans, the DePauls, and so on Mm. to have that support system. So I went to DePaul through Posse. And uh, I don't forget, this summer of 2003, um, I was so eager to get out of Farakaway just to say, like, hey, I made it, right? This is the promised land. Like, I made it to a place where no one in my family has made it to. I went two weeks early mm. to campus and I had to like write a letter, explain why I needed to get there. But I had this pressure and I was having dreams about Sally, uh, of me getting shot, being that story of the kid got shot, who had a full tuition scholarship, yada, yada, yada. Yep. So I get to campus and uh, I'll never forget, dropped down, I had some cousins in Indiana. My cousin Nicole picked me up, dropped me to campus and I could not sleep for the first week and a half because it was so quiet, so different. Mm. than New York City. Right. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? So you talk about like that fear or that side eye. I'm looking every direction like, oh, what's happening? People are stopping and smiling and saying hi. Like it's military motive. So it was just vastly different. But then again, on the flip side, it's been a couple of times like, all right, if I don't stay here, where am I going? Back to Farakaway? That's right. not going to happen. I know that story. Um, so it was just really about at the time, it was like, all right, how do you survive and then hopefully thrive? And I always felt like education was the biggest hustle that no one wanted to talk about. So I'm like, all right, this school thing is going to help me get some opportunities. And to be honest, at the time, it's like, all right, how do I get money for myself and my family? Hmm. So the first thing I was thinking about was Wall Street. Back right. home in New York, that's all you heard, as you saw. So I'm like, all right, how do I get a job on Wall Street? I hate writing. I like numbers, da da da. Bet I'm a major in mathematics. So I majored in mathematics. Uh, my first internship was at Bloomberg LP. Okay. And then my second was at Lehman. And I went back to Lehman for my third summer and then went there full time with a thought, like, all right, cool. I'm back home in New York. Uh, I got a little education with this degree. I got this job on Wall Street. It's time to grind and, I don't know, be uh, Nino Brown and, <laughs> and save, the, <laughs> save the hood, right? <laughs> right. About the family. So that was the mentality at the time. 
but then you quickly understand like, man, this environment is not made for you either. And I had four years where I knew like this environment is not made for me, but I thought after those four years, I learned enough to know how to navigate and uh, master this um, code switching, everything else that comes with being a black person in a predominantly white space. Um, but no, man, was, yeah. you quickly realize that like there's ceilings, there's biases, and at the end of the day, <laughs> everyone in Lehman or any other corporation are people, right? So whether it's DePaul or whatever else, and they come with their own baggage that they uh, might judge you no matter what. Yeah, yeah, and trying to like trying to uh, make sense of it because because you never know exactly who's who. Right. So like, you know, like systemic racism is there and it's real. It's like uh, it's like gravity. It's everywhere Mm -hmm. or oxygen It's everywhere. Right. But you can't necessarily see it and touch it per se, but it's everywhere and it's pervasive. And so that's the most taxing part. Right. Like if you have a bad experience for whatever reason, like, damn, it's because I'm black. Right. Or maybe this person is just an idiot or a terrible person. Right. And it's so taxing uh, when you're just every space you go to, you're trying to better yourself, you're kind of reminded, one, you're black, and two, like, oh, you're different. So, yeah. Mm, I remember, I, it's funny, I, I was I was at a gig, and um, my, you know, I I could call her my mentee, mentee, but she just happened to be my direct report, and I happened to be able to teach her quite a bit, but I always joke, if I stay working long enough, I'm going to end up working for her. She's was, she was pretty talented mm-hmm. in what she did. But I remember we were in a meeting and you know, I was much more senior. Not only was I a manager, but I was about three, four promotions above her. I forget exactly the, the difference in stratification. But um, mm-hmm. she was just she was just down. She was not black, but she just happened to be one of those human beings that doesn't really trip off of uh, mm-hmm. race, right? She's like just a, a solid person. And so we were in a meeting and somebody came at me real crazy. And it was out of context of the conversation we were having. And even if I were in the wrong, it would have been out of, it would have been bad form given like the power dynamic of who I was sitting around that table versus who everyone else was sitting around that table. Mm. But yet this person still had the license and the comfort to come at me really <laughs> sideways. And I, I, I kept my calm though, right? Because, you know, it's like, look, mm-hmm. you can't be the angry black dude, especially, there you, go. you know, yeah. you, just, you just can't be the angry black dude. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I, I kept my calm and didn't really um, bug out. Um, and was like, look, I, I know that this is chestnut checker. So I'm going to just, you know, take note and, um, mm-hmm. you know, ask some clarifying questions, you know, try to be somewhat diplomatic, you know, and, and neutralize the situation. But then, you know, I, I tapped in later with my direct report who she knew none of like what my inner monologue was around the, the conversation. And she was pretty direct. You know, she was like, nah, that was bullshit. Like hmm. she came at you crazy. I don't understand why, but she completely came <laughs> at you crazy and it was personal. And so it still may not have been because I was black. It could be because you know, she didn't like my whatever, but chances are because I was black, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, but those are the questions that we always have to ask ourselves and not, and we don't always have someone else in the meeting or that was present yeah. who can just give you the breakdown, give you an objective, unfiltered yeah. breakdown. You know what I mean? So you're always asking yourself and trying to, you know, work, work your way through it. And it could be crazy making for sure. Yeah, but, exactly. Right. You're hitting it every day. And, and that's just at work, right? So you yeah. compounded by the social setting outside of work, especially in Chicago, where I think it's such a segregated city. Yeah. You know, I'm riding a train to work, listen to my little music, and then you may have someone who might move their purse in a different direction. Oh, fuck, I just woke up. I'm just trying to get to work and do my job. <laughs> right. And you get to work, and then you have this, and then you leave work, and then somebody else is, it's a lot, especially yeah. for the mental. It's just, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's and it's persistent. Um, yeah. But yo, so actually, before, before I move to the next question, how how are you coping with all of that? Because I mean, yeah, because um, yeah, there's, it's important to make sure, like, we're not meant to just live just receiving all of that. We got to find some way to offload that in a yeah. constructive, productive way. So, how are you dealing with that? It's been challenging because of COVID, right? So pre-COVID, 
I was playing basketball three, four times a week, and that was my outlet. Take all my aggressions out on the court and then leave like, ah, I'm good. But with COVID, that, that stopped. As soon as the NBA, so they put down like, oh, well, I guess I'm not playing anymore. Right. Uh, at least until things got better. So I had to pivot to something else to kind of get my mind right. And similar to you, I went to the whole meditating aspect. And this is right around, unfortunately, uh, I want to say April of last year, I lost my grandmother to COVID. And then mm-hmm. in May, Sorry to hear that. I lost my cousin and uncle in the same week to COVID. So I'm like, oh, man, this thing is crazy. So right. not having an outlet for basketball, I do the whole meditation and the first, I don't know, probably 50 times of trying, I can't get past a minute. I mean, this is, this is crazy. I can't stop my mind and stop everything just for a minute, but just staying dedicated to it. So now I can be like 10 minutes, 15 minutes and so on. Mm-hmm. So meditation has been a great kind of outlet for me to kind of just check in with myself and stop and breathe. Um, then second, a good friend of mine, one of my posse members, uh, godmother of my daughter, we would send each other three reasons why we're grateful. Three, three things we're grateful for. It could be as small as this fresh cup of coffee to something as, I don't know, a bonus or whatever it may be uh, per day. And that made me just stop and kind of think about, like, all right, and all this madness of trying to be an entrepreneur, trying to be a great father and a great husband and a great community member and all this other stuff, things are going right, right? Like, there's something I can be grateful for and appreciate for this moment or for this day. So I think those two things has been helping me to kind of stay sane through this uh, unique period of time with COVID yeah. and everything else. Um, and then being a little bit more vulnerable and just sharing uh, little stories here or just telling, you know, people like yourself and other brothers from Michigan and other friends like, yeah, I love you. Right? Like, yeah. Wish you well. And being a little bit more direct and giving chance the flowers that they deserve. Yeah. yeah. Great. So I, a random curiosity, because there, there may potentially may be an intersection here, but is was that the impetus behind you starting Wellness Wednesday in the, yeah, in the group we're yeah. a part of? Exactly. Yeah, man. I found myself just going crazy. Like, what is happening? And I don't think we talk enough about it. Uh, just like wellness and just checking in, right? Like, what's one thing you're grateful for? What are you doing to kind of do better? And you don't got to be perfect, but uh, maybe I could learn something from this brother or the next brother that sparks interest or motivate me and so on. And even with the wellness Wednesday, I kind of fell off because things got crazy again, right? But that was the the hope behind it and the spirit behind it. Like, all right, let's just check in and make sure we're taking time to reflect. And then we can share and encourage or push someone that even better. Yeah. Man, I gotta I gotta say that I'm super appreciative that you started that because it's almost as beneficial to read what you and other brothers are doing to make sure they take care of themselves and to know that y'all are out there making those investments and I care about y'all. So like to just, to know that, you know, brothers are doing that to make sure that they're well, it's almost as beneficial to read what you guys are doing as it Mm -hmm. is to do it myself. It's almost like this synergistic relationship where reading it is a part of my wellness Wednesday. And then I'm able to like be held accountable and like, okay, so here's what I've done. And even mm-hmm. on, the, on the weeks, was like, you know what? I've only done two things, you know what I mean? And other things that I was supposed to do, I didn't do. Then it just becomes a positive motivation to make sure like, all right, you, exactly. got, you got seven days and we can do better <laughs> before the next yep. check-in, you know what I mean? Yeah, the healthy accountability um, that I think we all need, especially now, because again, like probably the number one thing you would do for wellness before the pandemic is not available. Mm. And then two, um, outside of basketball, just seeing people, right, was healthy for me. Yep. So having this kind of level of engagement helps me, like, I we're engaging in a deeper level than just a like or whatever it may be, so. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, those those likes are, huh. <laughs> those, are those are fast food calories for sure. <laughs> so, so bringing it back to your, like, super dope journey, though. So you go through, your posse helps you get through your four years in undergrad. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing this math right, you come out, do you 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 go to Lehman full time after undergrad? Yeah, man. So I joined in uh July of 07. So roughly about a year later, the bubble happened and Lehman went under September 16th of 08. Right. That's mm-hmm. wild. And so how how did you navigate that experience and how did it lead you into grad school? 
Like, yeah, like explain to me that period from like the whole feel like Armageddon is happening, right? You're in the center yeah. of the economic universe. Yeah. At the oldest or one of the oldest. So that crashes. Walk, walk, mm-hmm. walk, walk us through it. Yeah, I'm at the brothers, right? Uh, Lehman Brothers, I'm there. And uh, I remember, I think, three days before we filed for bankruptcy, my manager called us in, like, hey, no one knows what's going to happen. We're optimistic. Da, da, da. Everyone's like, it's Lehman. Like, there's no way we're going to go belly up. So uh, I'm sitting in Brooklyn, living in the best side of time with my then fiance, now wife. And we're watching the news, like, oh, shit, this really happened. Hmm. So uh manager calls me like, hey, come in tomorrow. We'll talk about it. And I was so young and fresh. and like, huh, what is happening? And I remember walking into the office and there's a few people walking out with boxes. I remember one guy picks up a chair, an office chair, and starts banging like the window. I'm like, what the, what's happening? Right. Um, so I walk into my manager's office. And again, I was naive, right? Because I had a few dollars. You know, now I'm starting to save. I'm like, okay. I lost a couple, whatever, fine. And he was crying. And this is a guy, you know, I respect and no like shade for crime. I'm like, what is happening? Right. He's like, I don't think you understand. Like all of my kids' tuition was, you know, locked into Lehman stock. I'm like, huh? Damn. So yeah, right. I'm like, this is real. I saw a few other guys, like, you know, I had X, Y, and Z was leaning for my mortgage and so on and so on. So you had people towards the end of the career who felt like they just lost it all and, you know, it's going to impact their family. And that's when it came real to me, like, huh. Um, and for me personally, my man's like, yeah, listen, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, and so on. And right at that moment, or around that time, my fiance, who's from Cincinnati, like, hey, I can't live in New York. I'm like, well, I'm not living in Cincinnati, so we're going to have to figure something out. <laughs> and uh, we were compromised in Chicago. And so my man's like, you can go to Chicago if you like, but I can't protect you. I can't guarantee you anything. But to be honest, I can't protect you or guarantee you anything in New York. So we went to Chicago after visiting once in college. Um, at that time, it was officially Barclays. And for the next, I'm going to say, two, three months, I was sitting on the training floor just fiddling my thumbs. It was no work, nothing. Mm. We'll pick up the phone, try to call someone, not having it, right? Um, and then my new manager pretty much came to the point, man, well, my new manager, he ended up retiring. Like, I can't deal with this. He left. Then I had a new manager, Susan Murphy, which is a godsend woman, just amazing. She's like, listen, uh, you're about to get terminated just because we have to manage headcount. You got four weeks left. You, you want to chill, you can chill, or we can rock out. I'm like, eh, all right, well, let's rock out. Like, there's nothing we can do here. So Susan took me under her arms, and we just went after it. And after that four weeks was up, she's like, listen, we actually got more business now. You want to stay? I'm like, of course. So I stayed with Barclays on a repo desk, short-term paper, met Dave Pont, a few other folks, and we just kind of grind out. And looking back at it, it was so cool because we literally went from like the number two player on the, on the street to no one and then revamping, rebuilding the culture and the brand and the business. That in itself was an experience I could never Right. Put money towards right, like like wow, this is it. Right. So just figuring out how to create a new business uh, and then sell a new vision and brand was awesome. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, I was legit the only black person on the whole trading floor. And this is now entering the Obama election. When you start hearing <laughs> stuff like, "Oh, this Obama guy," and this, and they're like, "Oh man," right? right? So. All this tension that's happening in the world, especially from a race perspective, while this black man is trying to run for presidency and so on. Chicago is a somewhat hometown and yada, yada, yada. Uh, so for me, financial services was great. I was learning a lot, but I never felt comfortable. The only one, um, the business and the culture of it was just not who I was. You know, you would work hard and then guys would try to go to a strip club and take the wedding ring off and I'm like, that's not me. Right. It's like, right, I need to get out of this space. It's not healthy. I can't see myself retiring this business. I would legit wake up and the first word that come out of my mouth was the F-bomb. Like, this, this, is, right. this is not it. Right. Um, and true story, I didn't know anything about an MBA until I forget who told me, like, what? Like, I'm like, I love basketball, but I'm not going to MBA. Like, no, like, master. <laughs> right? like, I, in my head, I was the first one to go to college. So after college, what else I need to do? Like, this right, is right, it. right. 
And then I learned about the the MLTs of the world, the consortium, like, huh, okay. And I started applying for jobs as well. I'm like, I gotta get out of financial services, I gotta get out. Every time I applied, they're like, oh well, you got a math degree, you work in financial services, why don't you work in our finance for this company? Like, I'm trying to get out. So for right. me, the MBA was a way for me to pivot into X. I didn't know what X was. At the time, my essay was all about like nonprofit and making more impact in the community and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm like, all right, once I got to Ross, I'm like, huh, I can still make impact and still drive business solutions and results. And that's where I really want to be. Yep. Um, so then proceed the whole consulting. I'm like, oh, I can strategize. So I worked at ATK, AT Carney for my summer internship. Um, but the traveling was trash. I'm like, oh my God. Right. I was flying, I was based in the, the Bay Area, San Francisco. Then so how somehow I flew to Chicago, but I was in the suburbs. So I mean I had to fly out Sunday to get ready for a Monday morning meeting, fly out late Thursday, and I was exhausted, like, nope, I'm not doing this. And then um started talking to folks like yourself and other folks about brand management. You know, okay, this is a taste of entrepreneurship, right? I can own a PL, I could drive yeah. a business. And uh, I could see if this is really what I want to do. So then left Michigan and went to Kraft. Um, and I got an offer for Kraft. But uh, I kid you not, I was in Cambodia uh, for my birthday and traveling after business school. Then the news dropped that Kraft got acquired from Heinz. And that just took me back to Lehman. Like, what the hell? Right. This is totally different than what I wanted. I'm trying to get away from the finance. And Heinz was really heavy on, the, you know, zero-based budgeting. Like, this is all like numbers game. It's not really mm. marketing per se. Uh, so when I got there, like, let's give it a try and so on. But after eight months, like, okay, this is more like Lehman than what I thought it would be. Right. Um, and then try to pivot out of there sooner or later. And then I went to Google to speak about leadership and then bring it kind of full circle. Uh, they had me and the founder of Posse speak about leadership. And I was just there mm. Kind of just raw, talking about like, hey, this is what I care about. These are my values. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. And talking about some of the nonprofits I had in Chicago, some of the work I was doing in Chicago. And uh, I had no interest at the time or no even thought it'd be feasible to work at Google. And then after speaking, a few directors like, man, I was really powerful. I ever thought about working at Google. And for me, I'm like, huh, actually, no. I'm like, you know, I'm always open to having a conversation because in my head, when I heard the word sales, I thought I was like, I got to cold call someone and right. try to pitch something like that's not me. I like solving problems. And then uh, after having a few conversations with some of the directors and a few other folks, like, oh, wow, this is different. This is truly solving business needs and solutions. Mm-hmm. And then um, I started interviewing for a few roles at Google and then I got fortunate enough to go there um, April of 2018 to join the Chicago office. That's what's up. So I've taken a quick pause right there. At, you're at Google April, 2018. So from 2008, that's a, that's like a, a decade, right? So you go through yeah. economic meltdown mm-hmm. and the interesting piece, what I'm hearing is you didn't panic, right? It was stressful, mm-hmm. it was chaotic, you were nervous, but you didn't panic. You didn't let the fear become overwhelming. And you end up in a situation where it was like, Yo, you want to, you ended up in Chicago at Barclays on the trading desk. There was mm-hmm. no real work. It's like, yo, do you want to try and make something happen or not? Which is yeah. an interesting trait. I think it can be taught to a degree, but I also think people skew is just like, you know, being able to jump high, being able to run fast. Some people can just generate something out of nothing or out of very little. Mm-hmm. And so you saw the opportunity for what it was, or you, you, you just, you made lemonade out of lemons. And you had yeah. a pretty amazing four week run, which then turned into an extended job situation and some financial security, which gave you time to figure something out about what it is you really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Ended up in business school because you wanted to figure out how to lead and solve more complicated problems beyond just the, the math of trading and trying to, you know, crunch your numbers and hit your quarterly, hit your quarterly numbers. And so while yeah. you were there, you actually ended up figuring out consulting wasn't the thing, which almost everyone ends up consulting <laughs> when they first go into business yeah. school. Like I was a brand person before business school. There was no shot that I was going to be a consultant. I touched down, got into the business school group thing. <laughs> and man, I started considering consulting for a hot second. Then I just like snapped back like, what are you talking about? So I just yeah. find, it, I find it an amazing phenomenon how strong 
that like groupthink is in business school around mm-hmm. consulting. But net, you you do a little stint in consulting or you do your summer consulting. You're like, yeah, this is not the business. So you land mm-hmm. in brand, which is basically being a mini CEO, right? For those of you guys yeah. who are not familiar, a company like Kraft, for example, they break the total company profit and loss statement, their total P&L, they break it into multiple P&Ls and a brand manager or a brand team will take, say, I'm going to make this up. I'm, I didn't, I never worked at Kraft, but Kraft Mac and mm-hmm. Cheese, that'll serve or act as if it's its own company. And that's sep- separate from Kraft salad dressing or any other Kraft yep. products. So mm-hmm. you got practice managing and running a company by owning a P&L at Kraft. Culture shift with the acquisition, mm-hmm. you weren't really feeling that. And, you know, luck, divine intervention, God moving, ancestors making it happen, or whatever you want to call it, you end up in a situation where you're speaking with your posse homie at Google, boom, Google's like, yo, we recognize talent. We want this dude here with us. They make an offer. You step into Google. Now, Spot on. Yeah. That's a, that's an, that's an amazing journey. And I think it's the, I think the important, there's a, there's a, I mean, there's almost a whole book worth of lessons in there. The one that I'm going to pull out for this episode and just kind of throw at folks Quit thinking that everything's going to go exactly as scripted. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just forward momentum, build skills. And when, when the situation changes, figure out your ne- next path forward. Quit thinking that things aren't going to change because they're going to change. So have some mm-hmm. flexibility and just make sure you move forward and don't, don't panic. Don't freak out because you can end up owning your own Chick-fil-A one day, which is where this conversation yeah. is going. Right. So yeah, yeah. So you're you're at Google. Walk me and and I'm kind of you know giving the giving the spoiler. Not really a spoiler, but let people know like you now own a Chick Fil A in Chicago. So help me understand mm-hmm. how do you go from being at Google in 2018 to yeah. three years later now you're owner operator of your own Chick Fil A. What was that experience like, and what kind of compelled you to make that move? Yeah. So the process. I guess the starting point for me for Chick-fil-A was actually when I was at Kraft Heinz, right? So uh, I expressed interest, I want to say January 2017. And uh, for me, like after kind of working in brand management, like, cool, I want to do entrepreneurship, get a team and so on. Uh, How can I do that? And then all praise to uh, the, the brother we made a group me, the Michigan group me. There was a brother there, Chris Rocha, who reached out and agreed me like, hey, there's a great opportunity at Chick-fil-A. If anyone's interested, I'm willing to chat with y'all. So I just reached out to him like, hey, hmm. I heard what you said. I don't know much about it, but this is what I'm trying to do. Can we talk about it? So he kind of expressed uh, some of the ways you could join Chick-fil-A, whether through corporate as kind of a consultant or as an owner operator, I'm like, huh, okay. So after having that conversation with him, I went to two of the owners in Chicago, like introduced myself, cold called them, like, hey, I'm interested in learning more. Would you be open to me working at your store? Mm. So they're like, come on down, cool. So right at that point, I got the offer for Google. So I would go to Google work. And then at night I would go to Chick-fil-A and work. Mm. And that allowed me to kind of understand a little bit more about like, all right, what am I getting myself into, right? Like, Don't talk about it, be about it. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. yeah, it's like, okay. So I'm in the kitchen, you know, throwing down fries and all this stuff. I'm in the front, just trying to understand what exactly this looks like and engaging with the team and so forth. Looking at some of their, their P&L and things of that nature, the impact they have in the community. And when I kind of close my eyes, I think about like, all right, What's value, what impact, and what legacy I want to leave? It was kind of around twofold, I guess, well, threefold. Um, one, how do I continue to solve business challenges and needs and solutions? Two, how do I become in a spot that can be really intentional about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Mm-hmm. And the last part, and probably the most important part, how do I do those two things? without being a terrible husband, without being a terrible father. <laughs> right. So for me, what was appealing for Chick-fil-A, family-owned business, uh, it really focused on some of the family aspect of life. So I was like, all right, cool, that checks that box. Two, find my own kind of boss, um, incorporate as much as I was fighting a good fight from a DNI perspective, 
I was at the table, but I couldn't change the table, raise the table, mm-hmm. or really make impact the way I want, the speed I want, and at the level I want. And it's always got to get that permission. And what I found from working at you know, Wall Street to brand management, even tech, uh, yeah, that's a great idea, Kareem, but let's be a little bit more patient. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't sitting well. And this is kind of around the time where everything was happening with George Floyd and everything else. So it just came a point for me where like, all right, Rain, like if you look at yourself on a resume and everything else, you have everything you need. Better on yourself, right? Like yep. since you were a kid, you talked about this. Why not now? And if you don't do it now, you know you got a, a time a one year old, you're gonna get real comfortable with these GSUs and everything else. So mm-hmm. you can do it now. <laughs> or uh hey just settle down in this corporate life so once i figure out when to do the whole entrepreneurship and chick-fil-a uh, my thought process was like all right, i'm gonna grind out and google and leave on the best note possible just in mm-hmm. case stuff doesn't work out and hedge myself but when i leave i gotta leave i'm not gonna do the sabbatical thing because if not i'm not gonna be fully investing right um, so I was fortunate. It took about three years to get the AOK from Chick-fil-A. Like you will become an owner. Then another year to kind of get the store off the ground due to COVID and so on. So in total, about four years of kind of the time mm-hmm. I applied until the store was opened up. But during that time, it's such a privilege, right? Like I'm at Google. Uh, I'm not stressing about life. Uh, so I want to be clear about that. Like it's, it's really a privilege to kind of be in this predicament this space where i'm choosing between owning a chick-fil-a or staying at google i can't think of many cats who have the opportunity i definitely can't think of cats from Farakaway who have the opportunity so i don't <laughs> right. take it for granted right but the one one thing i would that pops out to me that's like anyone listening is, is probably have their own thing but what's really popping out to me is this issue where Folks look at the the harvest or the rewards and like, ooh, I want that. But they don't understand all the work that went into Man. getting you to that particular place. So they might see, okay, Reem owns Chick-fil-A in Chicago. I want to own a Chick-fil-A in Chicago. And they're going to be willing to put, you know, four weeks to four months worth of work in. Like, no, nah, no, nah, this took you four years. Mm-hmm. to get to this particular place. And there was this longer vision. There was, I'm making six figures at the second, I don't know, because the stock price keep going up and down, but mm-hmm. fluctuates somewhere between the second largest <laughs> market cap in the world to the fourth largest market cap in the world. You know, just yeah. really comfortable life, but you're mm-hmm. still getting off work, going work a second job mm-hmm. because it's an investment in yourself and in your family's future. And basically, or ultimately, not basically, ultimately, yeah. Being able to do what it is that you want to do. So I'm just like, even though like I'm, I know your story, like hearing it told in like one continuous narrative in that way, I'm just like ridiculously inspired. And it's, I mean, I hopped on here to interview you to kind of help listeners and other folks out there, but I'm getting so much from this, especially with certain questions that I'm answering in my life right now. Just mad, mad impressive, Reem. Yeah, uh, kudos thank, you, to brother. You, brother. thank you thank you yeah kudos to uh to be honest all the black women in my life man i can't yeah. say that enough Start with my mom uh, yep. who raised my brother and i with humble beginnings and just kind of showed us the beauty and power of grit and grace mm, um grit and, grace. and then yeah and then my, my, my partner my wife uh i can't think of anyone who's more supportive i have some of the craziest ideas and She's like, let's do it. I got you. Um, mm. Yeah, it's pretty scary how supportive she is. And then uh, last but not least, my daughter uh, took my inspiration. Her to my looker. I'm like, all right, this is why we're doing it, right? How do you mm-hmm. create a space for her? My biggest hope, I think, and the reason I do a lot is I'm hoping I create a space where my daughter could fail and mm. feel okay with failing. I think Speak for me that. and many people of color, so it's just fair that if I fail, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to end up in the far rock away again. Yep. So how do I create a space for her and resources for her and equity for her where like, all right, I messed up. Cool. I learned from it. I'm going to try this. I'm going to yep. go here. 
I yep. think a lot of that uh, right now, that grind is to create that space for her. And if she's blessed and wants kids, that they can do the same, which historically, at least my family, uh, wasn't the case. Yeah. So creating options. Man, I, I everything about, like, hallelujah hands, like, support the vision, anything I could ever do to help, you already know. But it's 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 mad, mad impressive, like, the, the work that you're doing. Hopefully, folks are taking taking notes and taking uh, lessons and pointers in terms of how to go about making this happen. And instead of trying to turn this into like a tutorial session on how to open up your own Chick-fil-A, which I'm sure you can't really work through in a few minutes, we're, we're going to leave that there. And I don't, I don't want to keep mm-hmm. you from, from wifey and your daughter much longer. So I'm actually these four questions um, okay. and that let you get up out of here. But uh yeah, so I'm just, I'm just going to start here with the first one. So you told me about the time that someone went low and you went low back, which <laughs> we've all done it. And I know I know my going low back, the, the list is way longer than times I went high. But that said, I would yeah. want to hear about a time in which they went low and you went high and it, it turned out to be in your best interest. Yeah. Mm. It's somewhat top of mind, so I think this is probably the best example. Um, at Google... Um, I was there in the beginning and then I had this interim manager who uh, jumped on the team right when I started and he didn't respectfully didn't know the org and the business and so on so he was learning a lot and he gave me a performance review that I to this day felt was uh, incorrect and unfair and um, I was kind of blindsided by it right I'm like what the what's going on because all the feedback I got from him up until the actual performance review was positive. All the feedback I got from my clients directly, and I'm talking CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, I'm like, man, you're the best partner we had. Mm. Um, the feedback I got from my team members, like, huh, we never saw anyone think and strategize this way before. This is awesome. So I'm thinking I'm killing it, crushing it. And then I got their review and the score, I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. And to be honest, it, and messing me up, right? Going back to being the only one mm-hmm. and the pressure of being the only one. Uh, I felt like I failed myself, my family, um, the community, and, and, and much more. So at that point, I'm like, man, to, to me, the low part, like, do I just get the hell out of here? Mm-hmm. Or the high part is like, I really had to ask myself, do I double down on who I am, the values I have, and really show this person, this org, who I am, what I'm made of. So um, I chose like, right, I'm a double down similar, right? To that Barclays kind of experience, like let's double down and, and and act up and show them what's going on. Um, so that person, interim manager, went back to his role. My manager who hired me came back in. She eventually left and they asked me to kind of serve in this kind of interim manager spot that the team I was on. Mm-hmm. And under my leadership, we crushed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're growing the business like 40%. Um, we were doing things, what we call at the time, uh, DVIP. Uh, the first time we ever had it was under my leadership, under my account, and so on. I even got an award, a uh, gold award at Google, which apparently I think only 9% of Google Googlers ever get from a DNI perspective. And mm-hmm. they did work there. So I think for me, it was like, all right, so I left this moment where. I don't think I was treated fair to find who I am or do I run through it like, nah, let me remind you uh, respectfully who I am and mm-hmm. show you all the, the great stuff. So I think <laughs> that was kind of the top moment for me where like, all right, uh, let me go high. And uh, and then I got a score. I think I got the top score you can get. Um, I'm like, okay, cool. And that kind of rebuilt the confidence that I, I needed at the moment. Cause I'm like, man, am I really not showing up with that the way I thought I was. So uh, that was probably the one example. Yeah, I'm thinking of that, that J-Lie, he said, I'm a project baby. I'm with the effery. <laughs> humbly. <laughs> no, respectfully. Which, I'm from the projects. What you expect from me? I'm like, yeah, man, you know, yeah. I, I, I dig it. I'm I'm vibing on, on, on that reaction too because, you know, life is almost all of how you react to what happens to you. You can't can't control what happens around you. It's how do you Mm -hmm. react to it? And you don't want to give people that much power. 
Um, this one should be a little, a little shorter. What's your personal definition of success? No one else has to agree with it. It's like, how do, how do you wake up and look at yourself in the mirror or at night before you go to bed or whenever you do yourself check-ins and feel like, all right, if I'm doing this, I'm being successful. Yeah, man. Uh, simple for me. I try to every night ask my wife and daughter, are you happy? And if mm. they say yes, then I'm good. Boom. Um, okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Number, the, the next question is, describe your journey in one word. I'm battling, battling between two words. It's either humbling or grateful. Mm. Um, I'll go, I'll go with grateful just because, uh, again, um, growing up Farakaway has a very humbling experience, but to be where I'm at now, I'm extremely grateful. Yeah. It's funny, like your, your, your answer to that kind of leads into this next question. But if you, if you think about all the shit that we have to deal with, it's like, what do you choose to focus on? Do you focus on the negative and what's not there? Or are you grateful mm -hmm. for what is there? You know, and I think gratitude and positivity begets more positivity and more blessings. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's important to uh, focus in there. So that said, without even focusing on We've, we've talked through all the different stuff you have to deal with being from far Rockaway, being a black man, going to school, not too far from the head of the KKK in terms of undergrad, like all of that stuff you've had to deal with. What do you love most about being a black man? It's funny because you asked me this a year ago. I think my answer has been a little bit different. And I think as black men right now, I believe we're on this tip of being vulnerable. Mm. And I think right now I'm, I'm embracing and loving the fact that we could be vulnerable without judgment. Yeah. Or maybe it's confidence where I don't give a fuck if you judge me, right? Um, but that love of being vulnerable amongst each other in the world, uh, I think is very empowering and um it's a level of freedom that i never had before yeah no that's real man i think it's i think it's a i think there's a very real <laughs> shift that has happened a, a big part of it is uh the awakening you know born from the the murder of george floyd but then that's that's compounded by mm -hmm. living through this pandemic you know at a situation yeah. uh you know, brother Zumbi may rest in peace. He's a brother from Zion I, which is a rap group here in Oakland. Um, mm -hmm. And he passed away recently due to complications from COVID. Mm. And there's this whole kind of convoluted situation around it. But Net, you know, when, when he passed, uh, it hit hard, you know, because this, this is a young, beautiful black man. Like he was a good soul and he had a yeah. huge impact uh, throughout the world. But him being from the Bay definitely had a, Massive impact, you know, here in the Bay. And I remember another brother who I'm friends with, who also was friends with uh, Zoom B. He hit me up, man. And I don't think he's ever in his life told me that he loved me. But he's just like, man, man. We, don't, we don't know, you know, man. how much life we have left. And we just take it for granted. So I just want you to know, man, I love you, brother. Man, I'm legit right now tearing up. And uh, it's because I was thinking about this clip I saw on Instagram where some guy asks this dude, he's like, you know, do you tell your your, your male friends that you love them? And he's like, yeah. So well, why don't you call him and, and tell him? And he called his friend randomly and conversation was beautiful, right? Like, hey, Neff, what's up? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good, man. I just want to call and say I love you, man. I appreciate you. And it wasn't, you could tell it was genuine and it yeah. wasn't rehearsed and it wasn't like awkward. And bro, like, oh, man, I love you more, bro. And like, yeah. all right, man, I'll see you tomorrow. Like, a year or two, five years ago, uh, you can be that level. I'm using air quotes soft or vulnerable, right? Which is truly strength. Yeah. You can finally get to that point and like, nah, man, I love you. I appreciate you. All right. Keep doing what you're doing, King. Yeah, I love that, man. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah, that is that is that is so real. And yeah, we whether society didn't let it, because I think it's kind of two pronged, like, you know, we, mm -hmm. we just didn't live lives that allowed, allowed us, us to be yeah, to, yeah, to, to be yeah. that. But you know, folks are 
taking space, making space to uh, at least have that level of vulnerability amongst ourselves. We can we can yeah. take that armor off. So, man, look, I'm not going to keep you much longer, but I am I'm so grateful for you just in general, what you bring to the community, what you bring to the, the group that you and I are both a part of for you coming on here today, man, and uh, bringing your story and your wisdom and sharing your life journey and your experience. Um, that's something that's very personal to you, man. And you put this out here to the world through bootstraps. I'm so deeply grateful and appreciative. And I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, we, at least I, and for me, I always would say to other black men, like, yeah, I appreciate you. And that was, mm. you know, masked behind uh, some of that. You got to keep up. You want to give some affection, but you got to keep up that hard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I just go all the way, man, and just say, man, I love you, brother. I appreciate you coming uh-huh. on here, brother. I love you too, King. And thank you, right, for creating a space to share stories and listen to stories. Uh, it's nothing more beautiful than just seeing the behind part and not just the surface level. So thank you for creating that space, man. Powerful. Man, it's my absolute privilege, brother. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bro. One.